of our current royal family. Uh, the royal family seems to be in very good health. They have heirs and they have spares, everything that a royal family uh, would want to have. But just imagine for a moment that our queen has died and that I decided that I should be king. And so I drive up the mall and I turn up at Buckingham Palace and I manage to get onto the balcony and I declare, I am the king, King Stephen. There has been a King Stephen, but I'd, so I'd be King Stephen II. Well, what do you think people would do? Well, if I managed to get to the balcony, that would be a miracle. And if I did get there, I'd quickly be taken away. But what if I was really genuinely trying to say, I am the king? Well, people would say, prove it. Prove that you are the king. You see, legitimacy is important when someone claims to be a king or a queen. And for Jesus Christ, this is no different. If we were going to sum up the Gospel of Matthew in one phrase, it would be, Jesus is king. And the purpose of the whole of this Gospel is to show that Jesus Christ is the promised king who has come to be a blessing to all nations through the rule of his kingdom. That's what Matthew's trying to do. Through everything he's saying, he's saying Jesus is the king, the one that was promised in the Old Testament to bless all nations through the rule of his kingdom. And the whole of the gospel is structured in such a way as to show that to be true. It shows different aspects of Jesus being the king. And it shows different aspects of the kingdom of which we are, as Christians, his subjects. And it culminates in the death and resurrection of the king. And this gospel actually can be divided up into five different sections. And really it's divided up between, uh, you've got the prologue at the beginning, which is the origin of the king. And at the end of the book, you've got the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in between that, you've got stories or narratives broken up by sermons. And there's five sermons. They're sometimes called the five discourses. And you can see that Matthew is being deliberate in different aspects, showing us Jesus is king. And you know in the gospel, as a clue, that Matthew is moving on to a new section when he comes up with a common phrase. And I'm going to show you just a couple of them so that we understand how this works together. So in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28, we've just finished uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So we have the origin of the king, and then in uh, chapter 5, uh, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of chapter 7, and in verse 28, it says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And that phrase, when he had finished saying these things, occurs five times at the end of five sections. So you don't have to flick flick through, but just to give you some other references, chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, after a sermon, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. And then in chapter 13, verse 53, after some parables, it says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. In chapter 19, verse 1, again, Jesus had given uh, a sermon, and it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And then finally, after a long sermon of Matthew chapter 24 and 25, in chapter 26, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things. 
So you can see that Matthew is deliberately breaking up this gospel into these five sections that teach us different aspects of the fact that Jesus is king and what he expects of the people of his kingdom. And so if you were going to uh, break it up, you would say, here is Jesus the king, this is what he is doing. Here is a sermon that explains what Jesus the king expects of his people. Here is Jesus the king showing what he's doing. Here is a sermon and so on and so on. And that's how Matthew's gospel is broken up. In short, Matthew is saying, Jesus is king and this is what his subjects ought to live like. And we're going to see through this gospel that Jesus is no ordinary king. In fact, Jesus is a radical king. And his subjects are called to radical lives that are absolutely different from any other kingdom of the world. And if we're going to give our lives to this king, then we need to know who he is and that he is legitimate. And this is where Matthew begins. He begins with the legitimacy of the king. And the legitimacy of the king is shown in the beginning through his genealogy. And for Matthew, there was genuine excitement at these words. Now for us, we may look at these words and think, well, this is a bunch of names. But for Matthew, he had been waiting along with the Jewish people for hundreds of years for for the Messiah to come. And so he writes what for him is dynamite in chapter 1 verse 1. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now they've been waiting for hundreds, in fact thousands of years, for the Messiah to arrive. And in the first verse of his gospel, Matthew would have been so excited to write, Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived. And in fact, you see that word Messiah repeated over and over here. It's in chapter 1, verse 1, but it's in chapter 1, verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18. Again and again, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. And for that word Messiah is also, uh, we use the word Christ, Jesus Christ. It's not a surname, it's who he is. He's the Messiah, it means the anointed one. And for the Old Testament people, the anointed one, the Messiah, was the one that would rule as king over God's people and fulfill all the promises that were given to Abraham and to David of a godly king ruling over his people in their own land. And this was so very exciting for people that had been waiting for thousands of years for him to arrive. That's why it's called, we call this time Advent. We're waiting for Christmas. We might be excited to wait for another month for December the 25th. But people have been waiting for thousands of years. And Matthew can finally say, Jesus, the Messiah. Now this genealogy may not be exciting for us, but put yourself in Matthew's shoes. And as we do that, I hope that this evening as we look at this, it will be exciting for us. Because as we read through this genealogy and look at what is going on, we see that the the saviour that we worship, the king, is backed up by a legitimate pedigree. Jesus is the Messiah. So let's read Matthew chapter 1 and verses 1 through to verse 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I wonder what is it that confirms to you that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? For us, perhaps in the Western world, it's the miracles. The things that Jesus did shows he is who he says he is. I remember one time someone telling me about a Muslim man who was doing the Christianity Explored course. And in one of the sessions, it talks of five different ways that Jesus is, shows he is God. It shows his power over nature, his power over death, his power over disease, his authority to teach. But one of the areas was the forgiveness of sins, his power to forgive sins. And the, for the Muslim man, he said, well, I can see all the miracles and I have no problem with any of those. But I can't believe that Jesus could forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. But for a Jewish person, it was the genealogy. Genealogies mattered. The Messiah had to be of the right lineage. We saw this actually when we looked at the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, they were trying to find legitimate priests. And in chapter 2 of Ezra, they have a whole list of names. And these names were people who could be priests. But there were some that couldn't prove their genealogy. So in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 62, we read this. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So these men who couldn't prove their genealogy couldn't prove that they were from a priestly line, were excluded from the priesthood. You see, for a Jewish person, genealogy mattered. And if it matters for a priest, how much more for the one 
who claims to be the Messiah. We're going to see that Jesus backs up his claims through miracles. We'll see that he backs up his claims through forgiving sins. But here we see at the beginning, he backs it up too with his lineage. And there's three lessons that I want us to see uh, this evening from this lineage. And the first is that Jesus is king with perfect legitimacy. Perfect legitimacy. Note uh, in verse 1 who he descends from. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, these two men, Abraham and David, were two to whom God made the big promises of the Old Testament. So to Abraham, we read this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham was promised a land. He was promised descendants. That would be as numerous, uh, later on we read, as the stars in the sky. And he would be a blessing through his descendants to all peoples of the earth. And we read that promise again in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. So for the Messiah to be legitimate, to bless all nations, he had to be a son that came from the descendants of Abraham. Because it was to his descendants that this blessing of being a promise of being a blessing to all nations was given. So he was a son of Abraham. But before he was a son of Abraham, we read here that he is a son of David. In fact, He is a son of David in this genealogy before he's a son of Abraham. Why is that? Well, because David was the king of Israel. He was Israel's greatest king. The king chosen by God. And he was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what we read, that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And in Psalm chapter 89 and verse 29, I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. Now there's more we could say about these uh, two people, but we must say this, if nothing else. The Messiah has to come through Abraham and through David, but he gives precedence to David. His name comes before Abraham and Throughout this genealogy, we read over and over David in verse 6 and in verse 17, as well as in verse 1. Why is he showing that David is before uh, Abraham in his genealogy? Because Matthew is showing Jesus is king. Matthew is showing Jesus is king. And we see it all through this gospel again and again and again. And here, even at the beginning, he's the son of David. He is the king, the son of Abraham, the the, the Jewish king. This uh, fact that Jesus is the king is also made clear in other ways in this genealogy. 
Uh, the Gospel of Luke also contains a genealogy. We're not going to read that one as well. I've had enough names with just Matthew chapter 1. But if you read the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, you'll notice that it is different. It's significantly different. In fact, from Abraham to David, it's the same. But then after David, all the names are, are different. There's some that meet and they're the same, but there's a lot of different names. Well, why is it different? Well, the reason is the purpose. In the Gospel of Luke, in the genealogy of Luke, in Luke, he is showing all the way back to Adam. And he is showing that Jesus is a real man with biological uh, blood, bloodline. So he's showing the fathers. Who is the father? That's what Luke is saying. Who is the father? And we see that actually in quite a confusing way because in Luke, he uses the phrase the son of rather than the father of. And what he's saying is Jesus is a, a, a son, a real son with, biological, uh, with a biological line, a bloodline. And the point is that Luke's making is Jesus is a real man in history. But Matthew is slightly different. He has, uh, going from Abraham to David, the same, but then from David down to the end is different. And what Matthew is doing is showing who is the heir to the throne. So the question is different, not who is the biological father, but who is the heir to the throne. So from David down to Joseph, Matthew is showing who is the legal descendant that is heir to the throne. So they ask two different questions. Luke says, who is the biological father? And Matthew says, who is the heir to the throne? And they can be different. Even in our, in our own royal family, there sometimes are, people, are kings and queens that didn't have children. And so there is a different heir to the parent. That's how uh, these things work from time to time. And Matthew isn't interested so much in biological father as he is an heir to the throne, because Matthew is showing us Jesus is king. And he's showing us that Jesus is the legitimate king from the line of David. Now, even the, the structure of this genealogy shows that. Strangely, uh, you, if you have a really uh, great Bible knowledge, you may have, have seen this as we read through it, but Matthew skips kings out. So, for example, in verse 8, we read uh, that Asa, Asa is the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Well, actually, Jehoram wasn't the biological father of Uzziah. There are three kings missing there, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. They're, they're not there. Why is that? Well, look at verse 17. It says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So what we see here is Matthew breaking this genealogy down into groups of 14. Why is he doing that? Well, lots of uh, opinions are given on why he's doing that. Some people say uh, that he's doing that because he wants people to memorize. Some people say that he's doing it because 14 is a multiple of 7. Some people say uh, that the... um, what Matthew's doing is using a, a Jewish uh, formula called a gemetria that talks about the letters in Hebrew having numbers, which they did, and the number 14 equaling what David adds up to. 
Any one of those things might be true. We can't know for absolutely sure. But what is certain is that the readers of this genealogy knew from this genealogy that Jesus is king. That's what he's doing. He's structuring it so that we would know Jesus is the king. And another point that we see as we look at that structure is that Abraham to David, the trajectory of God's people is on an upward curve. It's going well. We come to the greatest king. But then from David to the exile, it's going back down because the exile was a disaster for the people of God. But then the people are allowed back to the land and it starts going up and it ends again with the Messiah, the son of David, the culmination of all of the Old Testament. Now, if you didn't understand any of that, don't worry. Just remember this. Matthew is making great effort to show that Jesus is the legitimate king. And this is really important for us today. Some of you may have received emails uh, that are scams, where uh, uh, somebody is pretending to be a bank, and they ask you to send you their bank details. They say, uh, put, so email us your bank details, and then we'll send you some money. But what really they do is they take your money from your bank. They are scams. They're not legitimate. They look real, but they're not real. They're scams. And with the Messiah, have we been duped? Is this just a scam? Is this just somebody that's appeared and claims to be the Messiah to get us to give them their life? Matthew is saying, no, Jesus is legitimately the Messiah. We're not being duped. The Messiah, who is the promised blessing to all nations, is the real deal. He is the one who saves his people from their sins. He is the one that has the right to rule our lives. Many others can try and claim legitimacy. Other religions ask you to follow them. But all of their leaders are dead. Our king is alive. The secular world around us tells us that, no, live, that you don't, there's no God, just live for now. And it claims legitimacy in our lives. Sometimes we worship ourselves, don't we? The me God. We want to worship me. I want to have my own rule and do my own thing and not submit to any other thing at all. No other God. Sometimes even family or friends can be idols that we follow, pleasing them even at the expense of God. But none of them are legitimate. They might all email you and say, give us your life. But they're scams because Jesus is the only legitimate king. Jesus is the king with perfect legitimacy. Following anyone else or anything else only leads to destruction. And we'll see next week that only Jesus is the one who can save us from sin. So he's the king with perfect legitimacy. And you would think that with legitimacy that Jesus Christ has, he would be proud of his lineage. But as we read the genealogy, we see that he's king with not so perfect ancestors. Perhaps some of you have family members you'd rather not mention. Or perhaps ancestors that you really wish you didn't have. Uh, recently, my granddad passed away and my parents were going through um, some of his things and they found out that they descend uh, from the Peaky Blinders gang in Birmingham. Some of you may have heard of them. Uh, if you haven't, 
don't worry about it, but they were a notoriously bad bunch of people. Now, my family were really proud of this. <laughs> they thought it was really amazing that they descend from these people. Uh, but in Jesus' genealogy here, although he is without the stain of sin, the same cannot be said of his ancestors. In this genealogy, we see some good kings like David, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiah. But there are also the likes of King Manasseh, who it is said in 2 Kings chapter 21, shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. There are some bad kings in this genealogy. But most striking of all, and what perhaps stands out the most, is the mention of four women in this genealogy, not including Mary. Now, this is striking in part because in a genealogy uh, that Jewish people would write, they would never usually include the women. Because it's not from the women that the heir comes from. The the inheritance is passed through the male line. So Matthew must be making a point in including these four women in his genealogy. What is the point? Well, there's a common factor with all four of these women. And the common factor is all four were outcasts. All four were outcasts. The first one you see there in verse 3 is Tamar. Now, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, And you can read about her in Genesis chapter 38. Judah had three sons, and the eldest one married Tamar, but died before he conceived. And so Judah gave his second son to Tamar so that he could have children with her. Uh, But for reasons I'm not going to go into, he he didn't, and he he was killed. And the third son was promised to Judah, but Judah never gave the third son to Tamar. And so Tamar, who wanted heirs, wanted children, prostituted herself and ended up sleeping with Judah himself. And they had uh, two children, Perez and Zerah. And the point here is that she was an outcast because she was sexually immoral. She had prostituted herself to Judah. A very, um, uh, not a great history to have, not a great thing to be known as. And then you have Rahab. Well, Rahab, uh, she was a prostitute. You read of her in verse 5. All through the Bible, when you read of Rahab, you read of Rahab the prostitute. But also Rahab was a a foreigner. She was an outcast. If you go a a bit further down in verse 5, you get to the name Ruth. Well, although we read of no sexual immorality with Ruth, she was a Moabite. And Moabites were outcasts. They were foreigners. But also Moabites were descendants of Lot. And Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughters. And one of those children was the fathers of the Moabites. They were outcasts. And then finally you have Bathsheba. Now she's not mentioned by name. But at the end of verse 6 it says David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And the wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. She had an affair with King David And the husband's name is mentioned instead of her name to show she was an adulteress. Now some of you who know that story may say, but it wasn't her fault. David had taken her, but still her name was tarnished. Still she was an outcast. And besides, she had married Uriah who was a Hittite. He was a foreigner. So Bathsheba would have been seen as a foreigner. She was an outcast. What's the point? The point is this, these outcasts are part of Messiah's family. 
They are his people too, just as much as Abraham and David are. You have these great names, but you have these four women. And it's a precursor, isn't it, to Jesus being the friend of who? The tax collectors and sinners. But isn't that great thing, great news for us? Are you a dysfunctional person? Welcome to the family. This is Jesus' people. I'm thrilled that these four women are here. But it also teaches us in being part of this family as his people. Not to judge people on backgrounds. We can easily label people, can't we, by their class, by their gender, by what they do for a living. But we mustn't do that. Because these are the people of God. These are his people. But also, it, as I was reading this, I realized that, that Matthew doesn't hide these people away. God is, is so pleased to have them as part of his family, even of the lineage of the Messiah, that he names them in this genealogy. And we should be glad to have who we have in our church and not hide from them or wish they were not there, even if they're a bit different or awkward. Although Jesus is from a dodgy background, the sin of his ancestors was not inherited by him. You see, Jesus was unique from all of the others in this list. And you can see that uniqueness in verse 16. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Notice what Matthew's doing here. All through this genealogy, he's saying, such and such, the father of such and such, such and such, the father of such and such. And he gets to verse 16, and it all changes. And what is he saying? Joseph is not the father. You see, he makes the point of saying that Mary is the mother, and Joseph was her husband, but he does not say, Joseph, the father of the Messiah. He's making a big point, which we'll see most clearly next week, that Jesus, uh, Joseph sorry, is not the father of Jesus. But who is the father? Well, I'm tempted to say, wait till next week. But Matthew is revealing even now, clearly, Jesus is the son of God. And the final thing we see in this genealogy is that Jesus is king, human and divine. One important aspect of a genealogy is that it, of this genealogy is that it puts Jesus in a real time and in a real place. Matthew is pointing out in these verses Jesus is a man, a real man in a real time in a real place. With real ancestors. He was 100% man, born of a woman whose mother's who his mother's name was Mary. But we see here that Jesus Christ, and we'll see obviously very clearly uh, in the next section, that he was not conceived in the normal way. We'll see that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's the Son of God. And so he's 100% man, but he's 100% God. And we're going to examine this closely over the coming weeks as we lead up to Christmas, that Jesus is God. But... It's interesting to note that Matthew puts in Joseph's genealogy. Joseph's. So if Joseph isn't the father, but Joseph is the the heir to the throne, well, how is Jesus, without being the son of Joseph biologically, 
the heir to the throne of Israel. How is he the son of David? Well, verse 16 tells us, kind of implicitly, that he was the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. You see, when Joseph married Mary, what was Mary's became Joseph's. And Joseph, therefore, by adoption, had Jesus as his son. Notice, um, again, we'll look at this more next time, but in verse 21, it says, She will give birth to a son, this is speaking to Joseph, and you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph was to name the child. The naming of the child is the responsibility of the father. Now, of course, God the father, through the angel, was saying who to name, what to name the child. But Joseph, as the earthly father, adopted Jesus, could call him the name Jesus, who saves his people from their sins. You see, when God became flesh, he was placed in an earthly family from King David's descendants. The one family, the only family that meant he could be the Messiah. He could fulfill the promises to Abraham and to David by being born into this family. And to fulfill these promises as well, Jesus Christ lived perfectly. He died in our place as a substitute on the cross. He rose from the dead, all of which means we can have a relationship with God. Because the barrier of sin, which prevents us from being in relationship with God, is broken down through what Jesus did. And what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness? We are adopted into God's family. We are adopted and receive the inheritance of heaven, the riches of heaven that come from the Father. You see, Jesus Christ was adopted into an earthly family. He condescended, came down, and was adopted into an earthly family so that in paying for our sin on the cross, we could be adopted into the heavenly family, elevating us from earth to heaven forever. The only one who could do this is Jesus. He is both God and man, bringing us together with God. That's why he was born into this family. That's why we see the genealogy of Joseph. Because through Joseph, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the king. So right at the beginning of this Gospel of Matthew, we see clearly Jesus Christ is king. And we need reminding every single day, don't we, that Jesus is king. And that Jesus as king has the right to rule over our lives. And as we go through Matthew, we're going to see that this is true again and again and again. And as we go through it, we're going to hear our king calling to us, follow me, follow me, follow me. Give me your life. I have the right to rule. I am the one who can save you from sin and lead you to glory. Jesus is king. And at the beginning, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and following, we read the genealogy showing he is the legitimate king. 
and the only one who has the right to rule, not just over Jewish people, but as a blessing to all people. And the question to finish with is is this, is he the king that you are following? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that all of the Bible uh, is true and is helpful and is good and it teaches us such wonderful things. And we thank you that through these names here we see that Jesus is King. And we give thanks that uh, as we read of these people uh, in your family, uh, we we read, Father, uh, that we also, through grace, through forgiveness of sin, can be part of your family too. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending Jesus to be King and Saviour and that we can follow him. Help us to do so this week. May we uh, remember that uh, Jesus is our King. He is on the throne of our lives and that we ought to submit to his rule. And we pray that over this Christmas time, as others hear this gospel message too, that they would follow Jesus Christ as King. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to finish by singing a couple of songs that...